Layla Tassi, our wonderful columnist, will be in the house at the end of this podcast to talk about work she has been doing on public housing. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, and to start the podcast, I'm here with my esteemed colleagues, Chris Ranowski and Laura Johnston. Hello, hello. Hello. Good afternoon. Good morning is what I meant to say. <laughs> and good night. Yes. All right, let's. Let's begin. With three weeks to go before Election Day, the polls are coming in hot and heavy. What's the latest one for Morning Consult Show, and why is that significant? Lord Johnston, it seems like Ohio must be in play because everybody's polling here. Um, the polls have been fairly consistent in what they show with the close race. But what does this one show? Yeah, this one shows another close race between Trump and Biden. And, you know, coming in at the fact that Ohio went Trump in 2016 by eight percentage points. Now we're looking at a three percent point difference between Biden and Trump still leaning for Trump. But Morning Consult polls daily and then it uses a 10 day rolling average for state level results. And they talked to about 2,300 Ohioans using an online survey. They've been co- tracking this survey since since May 5th. And they weigh everything by age, gender, education, race, home ownership, marital status, all sorts of stuff. But you're right. It does make it seem like you know people are really interested in how Ohio is going to go. So to figure out how the nation will go. There is a constant in all these polls that while they're close and some are within the margin of error, this one was not, Trump is always ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, he always has the slight lead. And so if these polls are anywhere close to accurate, he won't win by eight points. He'll win by one or two points. The big question, and we've discussed this before, is who votes? And this is people who say they're likely voters, but depending on weather, depending on COVID scare, which side is more impassioned to actually get their ballots counted? That'll be the the, the deciding factor come election well, day. Anyway, we've got this, three more weeks to talk about. It. <laughs> sure, we'll talk about it a lot. This was the first poll that had Biden in Ohio leading with women at 48% to 47%. But it, it is interesting that they're polling like crazy and people are voting. So, I, I mean, are they polling some people who have already cast their ballot? I don't know. Well, in other states, the lead Biden has is so big that people are saying even if the Trump voters are misleading pollsters like they did in 2016, it doesn't matter. Ohio's close enough where if there are people misleading pollsters, it could it could skew the results. So, look, we'll have a good indication in three weeks. We hope <laughs> <laughs> you're listening to this week in the CLE. Why is the Ohio Supreme Court considering how the state wants to execute people? Chris Warnowski, this is a bit of a moot point because we have a governor who's made no secret of the fact that he doesn't plan to execute anybody. But the beat goes on. What is the Supreme Court getting involved for? Right. So on Tuesday, the court agreed to hear whether the state's execution protocol is invalid because it didn't go through the proper rulemaking procedures. The decision sets up another potential complication for Ohio's death penalty, which has been under uh, a moratorium basically since 2018 as state officials struggle to find drugs to actually execute people. Tuesday's decision by the court, which is a four to three vote, um, accepted two appeals filed respectively by two people who are on death row. And the appeals say that the uh, three three drug lethal injection protocol is, you know, bogus basically because, you know, they, the state really didn't adhere to the proper procedures in, in reaching its conclusion on how to execute people. 
So you're right. I, you know, because of, of DeWine's sort of point of view on this, we really haven't, we've only had one, I think, execution or two in the past few years. And not, we haven't had a single one during his term. During his term, right. No. But yeah, I mean, it just kind of kicks the can down the road a little bit more. Um, but, but, but there what, is an what's interesting. What's the crux of this, though, is that they, they had a drug. Right. They had a drug that worked, but they couldn't buy it anymore right. because the people that make it are against the death penalty, right. as is most of the world. Right. And so they wouldn't allow their stuff to be used for something that they philosophically oppose. So Ohio has been doing gymnastics, trying to come up with chemicals that will kill people humanely. Well, that's quote unquote. <laughs> yeah, right. And, and, right. And, and every time they do, it goes to court and ends up getting into trouble. And it sounds like they're in trouble again. If they didn't follow the basic protocol, how can they go forward? Right. And, you know, this is, you know, you you can find people who will tell you that the, the, the way they sort of reach the conclusions on how, you know, this is the three drug protocol is, is a little circumspect at, uh, to be diplomatic about it. But, <laughs> right. but, you know, I mean, these, these things have been shown to be kind of cruel and, and, you know, that is, sort of the basis of this argument that what they were using was really prolonging people's suffering and, and, you know, and, and not killing them in an efficient way, I guess, is if you want to put it in the most clinical terms possible, but you know, it's, it's a, I mean, it's interesting. And, you know, I mean, regardless of, of DeWine's position on it, it, it does, it does bode well for, or not, it doesn't bode well, but I mean, it bodes well for the state that they're at least sort of inching toward figuring out what to do with this because he's not going to be the governor forever. And the next guy or gal who ends up in that position may not want to, uh, uh, may not feel as strongly uh, against this issue as he does. Now, you can be rest assured that because we've talked about this, I'm going to get an email that says, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Fentanyl's killing people left and right who are overdosing. The police have have seized tons and tons of fentanyl. Why don't they use fentanyl? Um, so why don't you answer that question for them so I avoid the email? Is, is that a rhetorical question? I mean, don't I mean, yeah. it's it's like, look, we're not just poking anything we can grab off the shelf into people in hopes that they're going to die humanely. You know, they're, you know, they're, they're, I, I just like, I'm even loath to, to, to even address that issue. I mean, it's just, it's absurd. And, and I think that <laughs> that's that, that's the answer. It is. I mean, that's it's ridiculous. Just, you know, get therapy if that's what, you know, I, it's, I don't know. Like <laughs> if, if, if that's on your mind, do something. All right. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Can people get the coronavirus twice? Laura Johnson, this is not a local news story. This is an international story, but it's a question that's on a lot of people's minds, particularly since the president has had it and he's walking around telling everybody he's immune and wants to kiss people. What's the latest that uh, our health team has reported on a recent study? So unfortunately, you can get the coronavirus twice. And we have our first example in North America, which actually is the fifth case in the world, uh, a 25-year-old Nevada man who tested positive for COVID-19 in April and then again in June, separated by two negative tests. I don't think this is just a strain. They believe that he was infected with two different strains of the coronavirus. And this is the most disturbing part of this news that came out of The Lancet, is that the second bout of COVID-19 was worse than the first. He ended up having to go to the hospital and get assistance in breathing. They don't really know why he became sicker the second time. He might have picked up a higher dose of the coronavirus, more virulent version, or that the presence of antibodies in his bloodstream actually made the second infection worse, which is terrifying. So that kind of 
destroys the whole philosophy by the anti-mask crowd that we just need to get the herd immunity because there is no immunity if you can get it again, right? Well, you would think so, but I'm sure they'll come up with some kind of twisted gymnastics that prove that this is why we don't need masks. I, I don't know. I don't think that you can look to that crowd for a logical explanation of anything, but it, it does certainly raise a lot of questions. You know, we, we keep saying, how can you have a, a vaccine if there's no if immunity doesn't last and, and how the antibodies work? So I just, again, I know we've said this a million times on this podcast, but there are so many unknowns about this disease. And this is just one more. Right. But what is known is it is a coronavirus right. and coronaviruses cause the common cold and you don't get immunity to the common cold. You get the common cold fairly regularly because your body forgets the, what it takes to get rid of it. So, Chris, we're asking you, what were you going to oh, say? Oh, I was just going to say, you know, there there are I, I also read something yesterday that said that there are a couple of ethics organizations that are, medical ethics organizations that have basically said, you know, it's not a good idea to to really rely on the on herd immunity that, you know, it's ethically questionable to do so because, you know, it, it's and, and so I think we should probably avoid, you know, avoid maybe that being our main solution to this problem. You know, I, I, I still think people should take it seriously and not assume that we're going to have good news about a vaccine or, you know, herd immunity anytime soon. We are going to do a, a story. Leila Atassi, the columnist, is going to try out a whole bunch of different masks for comfort and long-term wearability because we believe we'll be wearing them for a long time. So it'll take a little while to get it done, but look for that in the future. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How many people who were abused by an Ohio State University physician a while back have received settlements, and how much has it cost? Chris Wernowski, I'm going to turn to you on this one. This was one of the biggest scandals we've seen in the state. What's the latest? Right. So the latest in this ongoing story is that Ohio uh, State University announced that it had settled with 23 more victims of uh, former uh, university doctor Richard Strauss. Uh, on Tuesday, they announced that they paid uh, $5.8 million to uh, those 23 people, um, that brings the total number of cases settled up to 185, um, and for a grand total of uh, 46.7 million dollars, um, the university settled with 162 survivors in March uh, for a total of 40.9 million dollars. So, um, OSU is still in mediation for four lawsuits that are related to the case, um, and. Uh, you know, if people aren't familiar with this, Strauss began working at the university in 1978 uh, through 1996 in multiple roles. And um, over as of, as of today, 177 male students have claimed that they were sexually abused by him in some way. Um, he, you know, has since died. But um, Tuesday's announcement uh, brings the total average settlement to two hundred and fifty two thousand dollars. And the amounts sort of vary depending on the amount of harm the the plaintiff, uh, the specific plaintiff suffered it as a result of Strauss's abuse. And the crux of this is that the university knew a long time ago and didn't do anything to fix it. And that is why all of these people who've come forward and, and with some pain, this has been a painful experience for a lot of people reliving what they went through back then. That's why they're paying so much money is they didn't do what 
what you would count on a responsible institution to do. And even though they're paying out the money now, you still don't get the feeling that they completely own this. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's and they're going to still be paying for a while. So, you know, it's like I said, four, four lawsuits still pending is still a lot of lawsuits in, in this. And, you know, that amount is going to go up. And it's it's, I think, cold comfort for a lot of the victims in this case who, you know, have have spent so long, you know, waiting for somebody to take their story seriously and 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 to be heard. So, you know, it, it's good news in a sense, but good news for the worst possible reasons. The worst of reasons, right? It's this week in the CLE. What are nonprofit agencies saying in this pandemic as they approach the holidays, the most important time of the year for them to get their donations? Laura Johnson, I don't remember what the percentage is, but I think it's over 50. I think it's more like 60 or 65 percent of the money they pull in from donations come during the holidays. This has been a trying time because they're not getting to have their their little foundation dinners and fundraisers where people come in person. So what are we hearing from them? Well, it depends which ones you're asking. All of them have to shift and refocus, but many are optimistic that Clevelanders are going to continue to be generous. And many of them did receive help from the government in that PPP paycheck protection program uh, loans. So everybody knows of the United Way. Usually you hear about them at work. You get money taken out of your paycheck if you sign up for it. And, you know, there are raffles and all sorts of stuff. They can't fundraise at workplaces that don't have people in them. So they're concentrating on targeting people online and just in the broader community. The Salvation Army, which the red kettles are synonymous with holiday shopping, they think donations are going to be down by half this year because people aren't shopping in person as much because of the coin shortage and people not wanting to exchange cash, let alone get near people. But the Cleveland Foundation has been administering this Greater Cleveland Rapid Response Fund for more than six months. They've given out about $8.9 million in grants to 170 organizations across Cuyahoga and uh, Lake and Geauga counties. So, and they're starting another round with multi-million dollars already. So I think the bigger foundations have been doing better because they get the larger amounts from the, you know, the big companies and their charitable arms. But everybody that Cameron Fields talked to for the stories is they hope Clevelanders will give, but I don't think anybody has a real clear idea of what it's going to look like. Yeah, the the thing that I'm surprised at, I, I thought it would be far more pessimistic than it was, uh, that a lot of these these folks make their money by getting people to pay for tables and come sit in the crowd mm-hmm. and then really strong arm, arming everybody to, you know, start writing checks and handing over cash without being face to face, without that peer pressure of everybody in the room. It seems like it's going to be harder to do that, it, you know, you because people are at home and they're not going to be feeling that pressure, maybe because people haven't been traveling and they haven't been spending as much money. They'll feel a little more benevolent when they get the, the mail, please. But, you know, how many people open those? How many people get those mail, please, and chuck them unopened into the trash can? Not that I'm speaking from personal experience. I just I was surprised at the optimism from some of them. Uh, we'll have to come back in January and follow up to see how they actually did, right? No, I agree. We definitely will because these are not like outlandish concerns people are worried about to, to fund right now. They're talking about basic needs, including food and shelter for people really hit by the coronavirus. So um, maybe they maybe they'll just be able to just you know show people that the the need is there. And you're right, people 
don't have some big ticket items to spend their money on. So maybe they will be generous. It's weird, though, because when I asked you about getting this story done, my thinking was because we've heard from a couple of Mm -hmm. individuals saying we need help. My thinking was they would use this as an opportunity to say, yes, this has crippled our ability to fundraise. We hope people reading this will understand that we need them to donate at the levels they've donated before. And they didn't really do that. And that that's what surprised me. So I hope they're right. I hope they, they get everything that they think they have coming. Um, I'm a little, I remain a little bit skeptical. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What have we learned about the Shaker Heights police officer who gave the finger to Black Lives Matter protesters who were protesting how police treat black people? Chris Wernowski, when we got the personnel file, you and I had a discussion about, is this a story we should continue? I mean, the guy flipped flipped off a bunch of people. But the fact is, what we came up with is, yes, he flipped off a bunch of people. In an age when people are looking at police for how they deal with the public, he gave a lewd gesture. So guess what? He did it. We're going to go with the story. What did the story say? I just want to preface this by saying that you're going to get all the emails about... Me being anti-police, and but I'm not. But the, but but you know, I, I think you're right. Like in the discussion, it was just like I, I feel like this. What we found in his personal file does sort of have some relationship to the kind of behavior he displayed uh, on the night of the debate. If if you don't remember, there was a video that uh, reporter Robin Goyce captured that um, showed him basically flipping the bird to a bunch of people. Um, who were gathered out there. And then, you know, they, they, according to the police chief, they sent him home and, and now the matter's under investigation. His personnel file kind of told the story of somebody who is suffering from uh, a great deal of burnout as a police officer. And, and that is kind of reflected in his reports and, and his sort of attitude toward the job, according to his supervisors. Um, a lot of the more interesting stuff about him was that it was contained in his recent uh, performance review, which happened in early September, which set, which gave him a number of unsatisfactory marks and, and basically said that he had been very openly hostile about the idea of getting passed over for a position as a detective. Um, I guess he may have, must've been up for a promotion or asked for promotion and he didn't get it. And, and, you know, and not to say his his performance reviews do have some some glowing stuff about him being a very good police officer and somebody who understands the fundamental of the job fundamentals of the job. But a lot of the issues that they brought up were related to his attitude and his, you know, his approach to some of the work. And and so, you know, it it, it kind of to me, it sort of it, it relates to that kind of behavior that he showed on the night of the debate that, you know, that his underlying frustrations with the work of being a police officer. And, you know, and I get it. It's probably hard to go out and, and, and do this work when people are protesting against what you do for a living, but. Oh, come no, on no. though. The I, rest no, of the no. guys on that truck waved at them. We're waving at the people. I mean, come right. on, you're a trained police officer. You don't do well, that. But at the t- you just don't do But it. at the end of the day, you're no, you're, you're a government employee and you, you should expect that your job is going to be scrutinized by the public. The people of Shaker Heights pay taxes for your job and it's, you know, and and you're accountable in those ways. It's why your personnel file is gettable to begin with. You know, it's, it's, and, and and so, you know, I, you hope, 
cooler heads prevail in these situations. Uh, but you know, it, it's, I, I don't know if this is the type of behavior that, that emboldens police or, or if, if they take anything away from it when, when they experience something like this. Well, let's close. When you're a public servant, you serve the mm-hmm. public. You don't make lewd gestures at them. He, he shouldn't have done it. And I think his personnel file shows a bit of a, a cavalier attitude. So I'm glad we did the story. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Well, thanks, Lauren. Chris, you guys are done because I'm going to bring in Layla and we're going to talk about housing. So we will talk to you again on Thursday. I want to welcome to the podcast Layla Tassi, our columnist at Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. Layla, since she became a columnist, has been writing quite a bit about public housing and housing vouchers and the challenges that people have in finding adequate housing, even when they have the subsidy. There's big news in this sphere that Layla broke. Uh, let's let's go there. Layla, welcome. And, and tell me all about the big news in the housing voucher area. Thanks so much for having me. You know, I I want to start first by saying, you know, I was recently having a conversation with a man on the federal vouching voucher program who has a lot of health issues. And we were discussing his struggle to find a landlord who would accept his voucher. And he said something that I thought was very profound. He said he said housing is health care. And it really made me think about all the ways in which that's true, how access to safe and stable housing is so high on the list of social determinants of health for a community, but that during a pandemic, housing is even more critical because families who are living on that edge of homelessness often end up doubling up with other friends or family or going to shelter, both of which are just likely to encourage viral spread, right? Because social distancing is impossible in those environments. And so, you know, I just want to say that's the reason why I've been so obsessed with this issue lately. All right, but, but but hold on a sec. Hold on a sec. I mean, to say that housing is health care. I mean, I could say money is health care. I could say transportation is health care. What you're talking about really is a an overall sense of well-being. I mean, yes. your ho- yes, if you have stable housing, you have a better chance of being healthy. But if you have money, you have a better chance of being healthy. If you have health insurance, you have a better chance of being healthy. I'm not sure... I'm not sure I go that that it's healthcare. I mean, it's but it's this your is, general this is sense the key of... reason why the CDC recently issued a moratorium on evictions that extends to the end of the year. It's not to cut people a break on their rent because it's not the rent is still due. It's to keep people from living in crowded places and spreading disease. And so that, you know, I, moving the needle on fair housing has always been important to me. But during the pandemic, Systems and institutions have reacted in one of two ways. They've either shut down or they've stepped it up. And because housing is so critical, is such a critical social determinant of health, I think CMHA has seen this as their moment. And I think that's true. CMHA plays a critical role in keeping people housed, which is so important during this pandemic for social wellness and, uh, you know, Okay. I'm going to, I've got to move you along. So what's the big, the big change in the voucher system? So within the limitations of funding and within the limitations of what I think is generally a woefully underfunded federal voucher program, CMHA has really been trying some new things to make the system work better for the people they serve. So first, um, I think this is a big deal starting in November or December, they haven't worked out the kinks. CMHA will be accepting applications for the voucher program. But this time, the window of opportunity to apply will never close. And this is kind of a big deal. But of course, I'll tell you, there's a, you know, there's a caveat here. 
in the past, this is how the process worked. CMHA would announce that they were taking applications for one week. And that would be one week in a three-year period. Yeah, if I you, know. It's if, amazing. If, I know. <laughs> if you missed that announcement or you couldn't apply, you were out of luck. And they usually would get flooded with applications. Like more than 30,000 people would apply during that week. From those, they would hold a lottery to randomly select 10,000 for a waiting list to receive one of 15,000 vouchers whenever they become available. So you could be on that list for three years before you got your voucher. And then when they exhaust that list, they accept applications again for one week. But starting in November or December, anyone can apply at any time. And they'll hold mini lotteries throughout the year as the vouchers turn over. So if you're called, it means you're receiving a voucher. There is no waiting list per se, because everyone who applies has the same chance of being selected as the next person. And every 18 months, you have to reapply to stay on that list. They're also letting people access their accounts online so they can update information, their contact information, because in the past, families would miss their chance at a voucher because CMHA didn't have their most recent contact information, and that opportunity would just blow right by them. So, you know, it's important. Here's the caveat. So, so, so <laughs> you couldn't, so you you could not update your information online previously. No, I mean, that that seems like that should have happened. You I know, know, maybe ten but, years you know. ago. But all right, what's the caveat? <laughs> the caveat is, you know, I, I think it's so important to note that there still aren't enough, not nearly enough, vouchers available to meet the need in Cuyahoga County. If two thirds of the people who typically apply for this program never even made it on the waiting list, think about what's happening to all those families in the meantime. You know, um, to, in my opinion, the solution is a universal voucher program that meets all the needs. So that has to happen right, on the right, federal right. level. I, I got to keep you under ten minutes because of the <laughs> Google audio requirements, and you you can wax on. So th there's an important thing coming up. You have written a lot about how. The vouchers are half the process. The rest is getting yeah. landlords to let you in. And there have been some difficulties with that. So CMHA is applying for money that should make this system work better. And you're pretty yeah. excited about this. I'm super excited. Um, I wrote about this yesterday. CMHA is putting together an application that's due in December for HUD funding that would serve 2,000 families. It's a small amount of the of the overall number of voucher holders um, in a program to help them move into higher opportunity communities. Um, research shows us that where a child grows up matters. Growing up in communities with good schools, low crime, low vacancy, high opportunities, that all leads to better outcomes over the course of their life. And yet, you know, the majority of CMHA voucher holders end up living not far from the segregated, impoverished neighborhoods that they were trying to escape. And often that's because they're either afraid of encountering racism in, in communities that are really unfamiliar to them, or they're actively experiencing discrimination from landlords who won't accept their vouchers, which is a whole other thing. <laughs> we'll get into yeah, that we can't get time. into that now because you got about three but, minutes. Right. So there's about $50 million in HUD funding available for housing authorities interested in being part of a demonstration project to test the efficacy of what they're calling these housing mobility services over a six year period. And CMHA is hoping to be selected. And I'm really crossing my fingers for them. They're partnering with the Fair Housing Center for Rights and Research, who I have a world of respect for. And they will serve as the, the mobility counselors who will help these families choose to part, who choose to participate, overcome those barriers to settling into high How? opportunity communities. How does that work? 
Well, so basically they will help them connect with landlords who want to participate in the voucher program. They will also talk to landlords and and be persuasive about the about the the program. Try to dispel the myths that are that abound uh, that that feed into that discrimination. And um, and then after, you know, a family chooses a particular community and, and also, you know, families don't really know a lot about these unfamiliar places and to help them do the research to figure out where they want to settle their family and to smooth that transition out and help them, you know, not just kind of dump them there, but help them connect with whatever services they need to make their new life there successful. So and, it's like an advocate and a coach for each, yes, each person right, on a voucher. Right. That's what and also to continue facilitating the relationship between the tenant and the landlord so that, you know, those things stay, you know, strong um, so that the relationship stays strong and doesn't eventually devolve into miscommunication that leads to eviction and other things. Just kind of to, to be there for them in whatever way will help them be successful um, successful in their new their new life there. Um, and I'm just really hopeful for CMHA because this kind of program works amazingly well elsewhere. About a year ago, I wrote about how successful it is in Seattle. And honest, honestly, with even without the HUD funding, I would love to see CMHA find a way to launch this program here anyway, because this is how the voucher program lives up to its intended purpose. You know, the voucher program wasn't just meant to be like, here's your voucher, uh, good luck to you. Because that's where we end up still seeing uh, segregation and high concentrations of poverty. Uh, it's meant to help families find a way out of poverty and give their children the best opportunities they can. So, well, I'm really glad that you took on this issue when you first became the columnist and you're continuing to push it. Uh, and I appreciate you coming on the podcast to chat. Thanks for having me. I, I think you give me a run for the money on who has the title of the most talkative. I think I'm still ahead, <laughs> but you, you give me a run. I got to end it so we can fit within the time constraints. Thanks, Layla. We'll talk Thanks. again soon. 